God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. When it comes to marketing a product, advertisers will always emphasize the benefits and strengths of a given product right up front. So they're going to leave with their best foot forward. And then if there's any information that's maybe less flattering, a little uh, harder to uh, take in, but nonetheless that they're legally obligated to disclose, they're going to do so as subtly and uh, as less obvious as they can do so. Uh, Whether that's a banking product or a food product or a, a pharmaceutical where they're required to put the warnings, they're going to put it in what's called fine print, right? It's a light font at the very bottom. If you're minded, you need to put your cheaters on just to see it, uh, the fine print. Uh, this is also how it happens on television. I don't know if you've noticed, but all pharmaceutical ads start with a voice actor touting the wonderful benefits of their medicine uh, to a very pleasant scene of healthy people. And then the voice goes down to a hushed tone. And for the next 45 seconds, they have very alarming warnings that they don't want you to pay attention to as you listen to the happy music and look at the happy, healthy people uh, on the screen. I recently saw an ad for Lunesta. It's a sleeping aid medicine. And uh, I, was, uh, I actually found it online and rewound it and listened to it and wrote it down. So Lunessa's a, a sleeping aid. Here, here's a picture uh, from the commercial of, of the setting. So you see this woman. Uh, this has happened to exactly no one ever. No, no human has ever woken up ever looking like this. Uh, you know, never mind the fact that her pillowcase is still ironed, but her, her hair is perfect and her makeup is perfect. And this has never happened to anyone in the history of all humanity. But uh, while this woman is waking up, uh, you know, again, the voice actor is, is touting the wonderful benefits of the sleep aid. Uh, and then after 15 minutes comes the fine print. We're in a hushed tone. And again, I wrote this down. This is word for word. I did not make this up. It says, when taking Lunesta, don't drive or operate machinery until you feel fully awake. Okay. Walking, eating, or driving, or engaging in other activities while asleep, while not remembering it the next day, have been reported. It's actually happened. Abnormal behaviors may include aggressiveness, agitation, hallucinations, allergic reactions such as tongue or throat swelling occur rarely and may be fatal. Ask your doctor if Lunesta is right for you. Okay, so so Lunesta might give you a wonderful night's sleep, or you may, in the middle of the night, drive your vehicle and go get a neck tattoo and wake up the next morning and not remember doing any of it. And, uh, but I would say if I wake up feeling this rested, it might be worth the neck tattoo. Amen? I mean, some things are, are just uh, worth it. Now, while minimizing and downplaying the hard facts is commonplace in advertising, Jesus's communication this morning in the passage that we're studying is quite literally the opposite. In this passage, Jesus is actually going to lay out the hard facts about being a disciple of Jesus, not in the fine print, not in a hushed tone, but in bold lettering right there in the headlines. Now, remember again uh, the context, right? This text lives in a context of a story that Luke has been telling. Uh, Jesus is near the end of his earthly ministry. Uh, he, in fact, uh, he, he's had a public ministry now for a couple of years, and he is on his way to Jerusalem. This will be his last road trip before he goes into the city where he'll be arrested, tried, and crucified. And while Jesus clearly knows his fate, uh, he has told several others uh, that he is going to die, it's clear that many in the crowd don't understand what Jesus is doing, what his true mission is, or what following him is going to mean for them. Uh, the crowd is growing because Jesus has grown quite popular. 
And why wouldn't he? If you think back of, about what we studied so far in the passage, Jesus has healed the sick, he's raised the dead, he's fed the hungry, he's rebuked the bullies, he's taught with unprecedented power and insight. And so naturally people are drawn to him. They want to be around him. Uh, just two chapters ago, chapter 12, verse 1, it said that there were so many thousands following him, so plural thousands, that they were trampling on one another uh, to get to Jesus. So if you've ever been to like a rock show and the front man comes out you know, on the stage and people are pressing in, they want to be close, that's probably not far off from the scene, that the entourage that follows Jesus as he's traveling south. But this massive and growing crowd following Jesus were not all committed disciples of Jesus. A lot of them are just curious. I mean, this is the, the best show in town. Uh, their intent is not negative, but they're just curious. What, what is this crowd? What is this Jesus? Uh, maybe they're hoping to be an eyewitness to the next miracle. Uh, maybe they're hoping to catch another free lunch. You know, maybe they're just tire kickers or spectators or fans or observers or onlookers, just curious. But it's a mixed crowd of sincere followers, disciples of Jesus, and others that are just in the crowd to see what's going on. Now, with a crowd like this, most modern church leaders and pastors, I'll tell you what they would do, they would take a picture that showed how many people were in the crowd, and they would post it to Facebook uh, as a subtle brag for their popularity and their success in ministry. Uh, maybe modern pastors would, would, would want to retain the crowd. They would want to minimize any difficult teachings that the Bible has to say. Uh, maybe put them down in the fine print of their preaching so as to not scare people off, but not Jesus. In fact, in our 11 verses today, Jesus does the exact opposite. He doesn't take a picture and post it to social media and boast his popularity. Instead, he's going to right up front communicate uh, that being a follower of Jesus, a disciple, is going to be difficult. Again, he's not trying to scare away the crowd just for scaring people away. He's not trying to thin the crowd just for the sake of thinning the crowd, but rather out of love. In clarity, he's just going to communicate right up front that faithful discipleship is going to require a reordering of lives. It's going to require an embracing of some challenges. And ultimately, it's going to require a willingness to die to all earthly pursuits. And so he wants to actually call people out of the crowd and into following him as uh, disciples. He wants to call them into discipleship. And City Light, here's why this passage matters for us. Jesus is calling for us is the same today, to be his disciples. Uh, now, to be clear, uh, he came for our salvation, and salvation is free to us, incredibly expensive for him, amen? He did everything that we need to be, uh, that we need to be saved, and he calls us to, to trust him by faith, uh, to be the forgiver of our sins, to reconcile us to God, and when we do that, heaven awaits anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. But listen, at, between now and heaven, Jesus' call isn't for us just to wait around and watch Netflix and wait for heaven to get here. He actually calls us to pattern our real lives now after the life of Jesus Christ. He actually calls us to surrender everything to him and to be his disciples, to build our lives, um, not for this world, but for the world to come, to actually die to ourselves that we might find life in him, to trade in our ambitions in this world to live for the world to come. It's the call to discipleship. Jesus calls every one of us to it. I want to ask you, are you ready for that call? As you picture yourself, are you part of a, a curious religious crowd? Or, or is Jesus your Lord? Do you follow him? I want to look at what that call entails. Our text shows us this morning. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We use this phrase a lot. What does that actually mean? Well, Jesus is going to show us that being a disciple of his means, number one, to love him supremely. 
Number two, to follow him sacrificially. And number three, to serve him steadfastly. It means to love, to follow, and to serve. So let's look at them one at a time. First, he's going to show us that a disciple of Jesus loves him supremely. Right, let's look together, starting in verse 25. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and uh, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that's not exactly a Christian bumper sticker verse, is it? Right? Some of you are like, well, you know what? I do hate my brother. This is a great Bible verse. I'm ready for discipleship. I'm one for one, preacher. What's the next one? Well, that's maybe not exactly what Jesus is getting at here, but what is he saying? We do need to make some sense of this call to hate. That's an odd thought that Jesus is calling us to hate anybody. Uh, so what is he saying? Well, real quick, this is just like Bible study 101. Uh, a couple things to keep in mind when we're studying scripture. The first is this, that Anytime we're reading specific passages of Scripture, we need to read those in light of the whole, okay? So the Bible will never disagree with itself. And so anytime a particular passage is confusing, first thing we should do is zoom out and say, well, what does the rest of Scripture say about this topic? We call this the literary context, right? What does all of Scripture say about this? Well, we know the fifth commandment is that we should honor our mother and father. And so we know that uh, Scripture wouldn't give us, or Jesus wouldn't give us a license to, to disobey the fifth commandment. Additionally, Jesus said in John 15, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus commands us that we ought to love one another as he first loved us. Well, how do we love one another if we also hate one another? Uh, furthermore, Jesus said in Mark 12, 13, that we ought to love our neighbor as we love what? Ourselves. And yet Jesus says, unless we hate our very life, we can't be his follower, but we're supposed to love ourselves and our neighbor. So which is it? This should be a sign that we need to dig a little deeper. Okay. Second key to understanding the Bible or studying a particular passage when it's confusing is to look into what's called the cultural context. In other words, what would the original hearers of this teaching have thought in light of their language, their customs, their context, their saying of the days? And when we ask that question uh, and we do a little homework, we sort of unlock what Jesus is getting at here. It turns out Jesus is using sort of a, a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech to make a point. It was very common to express a comparison in the form of a categorical contrast. In other words, instead of saying that you really love something more than something else, you could just say that you hate the something else. You're, you're putting them in the proper order. Rather, he is, he is letting us know that to be his disciple, there does need to be a reordering of our loves. There needs to be a restructuring of our affections. And that the love that we have for the people that we love the most in this world should actually pale in comparison for the love that we have for Jesus. So, um, by way of illustration, before I got married and had kids, I used to love waterfowl hunting. Okay, I loved it. I had all the, the goose decoys and the duck decoys and the floaters and the full bodies and the shells and the flags. And I had a nice neoprene chest waders and uh, the expensive waterfowl camo parka and the nice layout blind. And I loved to field hunt for geese and sit in pit blinds and hunt ducks. And every year in late August, I would get out my duck call and my goose call and I would start getting uh, reacquainted with the waterfowl language. My goal was to be fluent by the time October came along. So I would get the sounds right and the sequences right. 
And uh, I didn't even realize how strange it was, but as I drove in my truck, I would practice my calling and not recognize how obnoxious it was until I would look over at a stoplight, you know, 72nd and Dodge, and I'm quacking like a duck, and i got families looking at me. But I, I was committed. I loved my craft, and uh, I loved waking up early in the morning when season started and dragging all my gear out to the water and that smell of the early morning crisp fall air. And I love setting my decoys out and let the water settle down. In the morning, there's no wind. It's calm like glass. And the sun would start to come up. There'd be some ducks would come over the horizon and I would call on them. They'd see my decoys and they would start cupping into the, to the ducks and I would shoot them because that's amazing. And they would splash into that calm water. And then you have the smell of the, the spent shotgun shells. And as you can tell, I could do it over and over. I could do it all day, every day. I absolutely loved it. Uh, and then at age 22, I fell in love with a woman. And a woman is better than hunting. And then I married that woman. And then we started having children, one and two and then three. And then before I knew it, I had four people that I loved more than life itself. And I loved being a husband and I loved being a dad. And I never stopped loving waterfowl hunting. Just talking about it takes me to a special place, as you can tell. I'm like, uh, you know, might try it out again yet this fall. But honestly, I haven't hunted ducks in years. And it's not that I don't love it anymore. It's that I, I found, right, a, a greater love. My, my heart has been reordered. My affections have been reprioritized uh, with something that I love greater. And that affects how I use my time and my energy and my resources. And, and Jesus isn't talking about not loving the people that we love the most. But he is saying that being a disciple of Jesus starts with actually loving him more than any other person. It's to value a relationship with Christ above every human relationship. And so he's asking for the place of supremacy in our hearts. He wants us to see his radical love for us, a love that sent him to die on a cross for us, a love that pursued us when we were running away from him, a love for us that secured an eternity in heaven, and to see that love and be so moved by it, by his love for us, that we love him then above all other things. Do you love Jesus supremely? Do you love Jesus even more than your family and the people that you love the most in this world? As a side note, before I, I move on, uh, there's an irony to loving Jesus more than the people that you love the most. And that irony is this. Husbands, your wife will actually experience a truer and deeper and better love from you for her if you love Jesus more than her, right? Wives, your husband will experience a richer, more sincere, more beautiful love when you love Jesus more than you love him. Parents, to make your children the center of your universe is not a blessing to them. It can actually be a curse. Your children will enjoy a better, more peaceful, joy-filled, loving, balanced home when you actually love Jesus more than you love them. And this even affects the way we see ourselves. Jesus throws in at the end of that passage, even your own life. And so get this, you will even experience a fuller, more beautiful, more purposeful life when you come to value Jesus more than you value your very life. A disciple of Jesus loves him supremely. Here's the second one. A disciple of Jesus follows him sacrificially. Uh, we go on in verse 27. It says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, again, Jesus's first century audience here would, would have heard that in a certain kind of way. When he's talking about cross carrying, keep in mind this, this massive crowd of thousands that are listening to Jesus say that many, if not most of them, have actually seen people carry crosses. Okay? Uh, ex uh, execution by crucifixion was the, the execution choice of the day by the Romans, and they were not shy about um, exacting uh, corporal punishment. And so many of these people had, had seen someone carrying a, a, a cross member, a horizontal cross member, down a Roman road. And when they saw that person carrying that cross beam, 
They knew that it was a one-way hike, that that person was not going to be walking back, that there's some finality to the cross. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, man, to follow me, something needs to die. Something needs to go on a one-way journey and not come back. Now, we know that he's not talking only about physical death here, because this isn't the first time that Jesus has used this phrase, that to follow him, we need to take up our crosses. He used the same phrase back in chapter 9, but back there, he added the word daily. You need to take up your cross daily. So while martyrdom was the fate for many disciples, and we need to be willing to lose our physical lives to follow him, that's not exactly what he has in mind here, because you can't do that every day. He's saying there needs to be a daily death to be a follower of Jesus. What is he talking about then if it's not a physical death? He's saying that we need to be willing to put to death anything that would keep us from following Jesus wholeheartedly. So if this first section was about a reordering of our affections, this section that we're in now is about a reordering of our priorities. To be a disciple means to, be, to follow Jesus and to make that our greatest priority. And to do that, we need to put to death anything else that has become a priority above him. And certainly this could be uh, sinful things, things that would include sins. We need to put to death besetting sins that are keeping us from following Jesus daily. He doesn't say you need to tolerate it. You need to find a workaround. You need to find a way to accommodate. He says, no, you need to kill some things, right? But it's not only overtly sinful things that Jesus probably has in view here. It could be good things. Anything that has gotten into the way of being a daily follower of Jesus with our lives. It could be hobbies, financial ambitions, youth sports, a dream career. None of those things are bad things, but when a good thing gets in the way of being a daily follower of Jesus, Jesus says, you need to kill it. You need to take up your cross every day and say, my number one priority is following Jesus. And can I just point out, that, that may sound harsh. It actually is a great gift. It brings profound clarity to our lives, doesn't it? If someone asks you, what are you about? What's your life? You can say with clarity, I'm following Jesus. Albeit imperfectly, <laughs> with tons of grace, but I'm following Jesus. That's what my life is about. It means I need to lay aside anything that's going to be a distraction from that. What a gift. And I love that Jesus doesn't hide this, say, oh, you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, he doesn't. He said, no, you need to be willing to, to let go of some things. And he actually is going to tell us in the next verse uh, through two illustrations that, that we should actually think about that. We should do an accounting before we step into a life of following Jesus, that we should have a clear picture of what we're stepping into. We need to think it through in advance. He goes on in verse 28. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all, uh, who, see it, uh, begin, uh, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So I don't know if any of y'all are building a tower right now. Not a lot of us build towers anymore. Uh, but imagine you're going to renovate a room in your home. Call it a bathroom. And say you start with the demo and you pull out the toilet and the shower and the vanity and the flooring and you got it all down to the subfloor and then you go to Home Depot and you buy the new tile. You find some wonderful tile and you put the tile down. You're like, this is wonderful, great renovations. And then you go and you get the new toilet and you put the toilet in and you're gonna go back the next day to get the vanity, but the only vanity that they have is $600 and then your checking account is only $500 and now you can't buy the vanity. You're like, oh no, this is the problem. My bathroom is half remodeled and I haven't even started, I haven't even gotten to the shower and I can't afford, afford the vanity. Right? That's the illustration. You're in an awkward moment. You probably should have done some math before you started your demolition because now you're going to have to wait for a while and your kids are going to have to hose out outside with the garden hose before school in the morning. Okay, This is not a win for anyone. You need to add up the cost before you do the project. Now, ironically, I have just literally described two bathrooms in my own home. I didn't count the cost of time before I demoed them. 
And here we are. So we had friends over on Friday night, and they had to use our restroom with the subfloors and the light dangling literally from the Romax wiring just hanging out of the ceiling. Uh, my wife is going to quote the sermon to me later this afternoon. Count the cost, Gavin. Verse 31, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. What's he saying? If you're going to go to war with an enemy, make sure you can win the war, right? If you're outnumbered, make sure you sit down and actually count the cost. Don't start a fight that you can't finish. Don't throw the first punch unless you're sure you can throw the last punch. Don't fire that first shot unless you're able to end the war. And he said, if if you can't do it, you're going to want to find a workaround, right? Send, Send a delegation ahead. Ask for peace. Don't start the war. What is Jesus getting at? In both of these illustrations, don't build a tower unless you know you can finish it. Don't start a war unless you know that you can win it. He's giving us a warning. He's saying that to give your life to Christ might start off with a burst of enthusiasm and excitement, but enthusiasm can wane rather quickly. So we need to have forethought. We need to think it through and have a clear picture. If I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, what does that look like? What does it entail? Coming forward at a youth rally to the applause of your peers to declare that you're a follower of Jesus is a fun day. And we celebrate those days. And I want all my kids to have those days and all of us. But we also need to recognize that there will also be days when our peers will look down on us, when they will mock us. That being a follower of Jesus is going to give us convictions and values and priorities that do not make sense to the world. That it maybe at the least will make us an outsider in the world, if not an enemy of the world. We follow a king that the world crucified. So we can anticipate that following him will not always lead to a life that's that's celebrated and received by arms of joy with people in the world. Verse 33, he says, So therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. I love how Jesus ends this with sort of the sweeping state. You know what? You kind of just need to turn over everything, honestly, to be a follower of Jesus. Part of counting the cost to following Jesus is that we need to turn over the deed to literally everything we own to Jesus and his service. We recognize that all we have now belongs to Jesus for his purpose and his glory. That's what it means to be a disciple. Really quick, what Jesus is not saying, he's not calling us to socialism where there is no personal property or personal ownership. He's not demanding that we live in poverty. He's not telling us to go live in caves with no possessions. In fact, even if we look at the rest of Luke's gospel, we remember the wealthy women who helped support Jesus's ministry in Luke 8. That was celebrated. We're going to see Zacchaeus in chapter 19. Money was a big idol for him when he came to Christ. Uh, he was generous and repaid people uh, that he took advantage of, but he still retained some, some personal property, and that wasn't frowned upon. And so it doesn't mean um, literally giving rid of everything uh, to this world, but rather it means to literally give everything over to Jesus. Say, so even if I'm a steward in this moment, I still own nothing. Because there's another guy that we're going to see in Luke 18 where, guess what? Jesus literally did say, you need to give away everything. He did say, you need to be poor. And that man couldn't do it. Why? Because it had a hook in his heart. It got in the way of following Jesus. He was unwilling to surrender at all. So part, part of the cost of following Jesus, he's just telling us on the front end, unless you're willing to let go of everything, don't follow me. Right? We, we need to say, my house, Jesus, is your house. My possessions are your possessions. My vehicle is your vehicle. My 401k is your 401k. Everything I have is you. And following you may cost me all of it. But if that's the case, so be it. Because following you is better than wealth. It's better than possessions. It's better than comforts. So what is the heart of a, of a Christian as a steward? So Jesus, I lost the title to everything. 
It all now belongs to you. And so I'm going to work, I'm going to save, I'm going to invest, I'm going to give generously, I'm going to use it all as a means to worship you. But if it ever becomes the object of my worship, rather than the means of my worship, Jesus literally take all of it. Because I would rather lose it all on this day and spend a life following you than lose it all on that last day, which we all will anyway, and look back and realize I didn't invest my life following you. Is that your heart? Is Jesus your most prized possession? Are you willing to put anything on the cross that would hinder you from following him with your whole life? A follower of Jesus uh, follows him sacrificially. Here's the last one. A disciple of Jesus serves him steadfastly. He's going to call us to some some grit here. Uh, He throws on this sort of concluding analogy to what he's saying in verse 34 as he ends it out. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is Jesus saying here? Saying we need to stay salty. We need to stay salty, Christians. Not in the contemporary way that we would maybe explain that. Some of you think, I really love this church now. I hate my brother, and I use salty speech all the time. This is, I am ready to teach the discipleship class. Again, not what Jesus is is talking about here, but what is he saying? One of Jesus' favorite sermon illustrations that shows up in a lot of his preaching is salt. He loves salt. He loves to talk about salt. Salt was both a preservative and a flavoring, just like it is today. And in this illustration, he's referring to the flavoring. Okay, Salt is distinct. It stands out. You can detect it. It pops. It has contrast, right? That's what makes it special. That's why it can season food. It's not like the rest. It is unlike everything else, and so it pops. That's why it's useful. Um, What Jesus is saying here is that we need to be distinct. We should stand out. We should pop in this world. He's saying we don't give up on the truth of Scripture when it's not popular anymore. We remain distinct in the world as a Christian. We maintain the character of a disciple of Jesus. It's our distinctiveness. It's uncomfortable to stand out, but that's the very thing that makes us potent in the world to be able to serve Jesus and love and serve other people well. He's saying if we lose our distinctiveness in this world, we're of no use as his disciples. We can't serve Jesus in this world if we're no longer distinct from the world. He says we're of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. That is pretty worthless. A disciple of Jesus who looks just like the world is pretty worthless to serve Jesus in the world. And so, yes, he's calling us to serve him when it's convenient and easy and popular and we're in church on a Sunday and when it's difficult and challenging and we stand out in a world and it's very uncomfortable. A disciple of Jesus is steadfast. We're like salt that doesn't lose its saltiness. We remain distinct. So City Light, stay salty, okay? Stay salty. Summary, a disciple of Jesus loves him supremely, follows him sacrificially, and serves him steadfastly. Remain salty. This is the cost of Jesus, the, the cost of discipleship that Jesus is laying out. Again, it's not hidden in the fine print. He doesn't minimize that discipleship is, is challenging. He doesn't say, hey, it's all going to be butterflies and rainbows. You're going to live your best life now. It's going to have Lunesta, a restful sleep every night. No, he lets us know right at the front, guys, there's going to be some hard days. There's going to be some sacrifice required. There's going to be some commitment to stay the course when it gets difficult. But if I can just land the plane on this text this morning by zooming out on this passage into the rest that Luke has been reminding us of, it's this. Jesus is worth it. He's worth the cost. Following Jesus is worth it. The old song says, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. 
we'll only be willing to follow Jesus, to make the sacrifices, to stand out when it's uncomfortable, if we really believe that Jesus is better than anything else that we can leave behind. City Light, if I could just remind you, no one has loved you like Jesus has loved you. The best people in your life will pale in comparison. No one else has given up their life to give you eternal life like Jesus has done for you. There is no one like Jesus. We need to be willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. But what do we gain when we get Jesus? Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, friendship with God, peace that passes understanding, the indwelling Holy Spirit, adoption into God's family, the promise that he'll never leave or forsake us, eternal inheritance, purpose for our days, a mission for our lives, a hope for our future, an unimaginable, untouchable home in heaven. The question that we need to ask is, what is the cost of not following Jesus? This morning, I want to encourage you, if you haven't trusted Jesus for salvation the first time, would you do that today? It all begins there. You need to know at the outset, Jesus didn't come demanding that you serve him to earn heaven. No, instead, he came to serve you that you might heaven, have heaven free of charge. He came to lay down his life for you, and we receive that salvation by faith alone. It's not by a lifelong of devoted discipleship that then maybe we get in. It's on day one, when you trust Jesus for your salvation, that you have a home in heaven that is untouchable. It is free to you, it's very costly, but he paid the price in full. You would receive that by faith. Would you do that this morning if you have not? And then the rest of our lives, what do we do? We grow in discipleship. Having a sure home in heaven, we learn how to follow Jesus every day. And so uh, as a Christian preaching to a room of many, if not mostly Christians, I would ask you, what is one step that you need to grow in as a disciple of Jesus this morning? Is there a, a, a place in your life where you've been a part of the religious crowd, looking on, being a part of the things of God, but if not surrendered and said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you? Is there a reordering of some of your affections, something that if you're honest, you just love too much. may not even be a bad thing, but you love it more than Jesus. And you would say, Jesus, you need to uh, surplant that in my heart. You need to be uh, the number one there. Is there a priority in your life? You look at your calendar. You look at your finances. You look at your relationships where Jesus has kind of been put in the margins. Is Jesus calling you to be a disciple, to lay that on the cross, to follow him, to lay that aside as a distraction? Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.